Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, wherever in the world you may be. This is podcast number 106, and today we have four interviews with five guests. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the clocks went back here in the UK this past weekend, which means we are only two and a half hours ahead of Newfoundland, and four ahead of the east coast of the US. It played havoc with all of my interviews this week as I was wondering why some of them weren't at the times I expected. The artificial nature of time zones always does amuse and amaze me. There are some communities that have two time zones running through them and some places where you can be standing in the Atlantic time zone, for example, and the eastern time zone is east of you and it's an hour behind. I think the strangest one I ever experienced was leaving Auckland in New Zealand on a Sunday to fly to the Cook Islands or Rarotonga and getting a second Sunday there. Regardless of the time, it's been raining heavily here for a few days and add in the time change and it really does feel like winter. Although there has been snow in some parts of North America this week, just in time for Halloween. Halloween has been cancelled here in Scotland, so no trick-or-treating here, which certainly has saved a bit of money, not panic-buying way too much in the fear that a thousand kids will knock on the door, which is a bit crazy in a village of 400, and we didn't have to buy a costume either. I think the negative part is Christmas items have been in the stores for about a month already. Anyway, before we get to this week's news, I should let you know who our guests are this week. We chatted with Vicky Davis, Global Marketing Director, Performance, Active and Medical Nutrition at Friesland Campina Ingredients, and Jauke Feldman, who heads up the Biotis Sleepwell team at Friesland Campina Ingredients. Matt Fonte, President of Sigma Phase Corporation, Vicky Nicholson-West, Executive Director of the US DEC Singapore Limited, and Robert Luo, CEO and founder of Mitero. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets, courtesy of StoneX, and this week it's with Charlie Highland. All right, let's get on with the news you may have missed. But first, it's a commercial. Well, kind of. Next Thursday, November the 5th, we have our live hour-long webinar on what new trends can benefit from dairy ingredients and what companies can do to create profit-making, innovative products that consumers will buy. It's free to register, and even if you can't make it live, you can register and listen later. My guests for the webinar are Dolores O'Riordan, Lead Principal Investigator at Food for Health Ireland, Christy Saitama, Vice President of Global Ingredients Marketing at the U.S. Dairy Export Council, and Liz Moscow, Principal at Bread and Circus Limited, and me, but I'll just be asking the questions. So please head on over to dairyreporter.com where you can register for the free webinar. And now it really is time for the news. A new project is looking to pandemic-proof the dairy industry, SIG has reduced water consumption on its filling machines by up to 50%. New cheese and whey plant MWC has started production in Michigan. In Italy, Granarolo has sold its baking business unit to concentrate on dairy. And the US Center for Dairy Excellence opened in Singapore. And that's the subject of one of the interviews in a little while. Kerry introduced its Simply Nature organic range of flavorings and extracts. Food Union launched some new ice cream products in Eastern Europe and the Baltics. Cold Snap is a new concept for single-serve ice cream, and an interview on that on today's podcast too. 
New Zealand's Spring Sheep Milk Company has opened an office in China. The European Milk Board says the new crisis instrument in Europe is a good first step. Chobani is increasing the starting wage for its staff to a minimum of $15 an hour. And Saudi company Almarai says it is the first brand to receive pandemic-prepared certification. All of these stories and plenty more can be found on DairyReporter.com. And so on to today's guests. Some really interesting subjects for you today, and the first is about sleep. Friesland Campina Ingredients has announced the launch of Biotis Sleepwell, the first concept to be unveiled within the brain health benefit solutions of the company's new Biotis brand. Designed to be taken just before bedtime, Biotis Sleepwell is a beverage, shot, or a powder application that provides the body with a combination of nutrients to improve sleep quality. To tell us more about it are Vicky Davis, Global Marketing Director, Performance Active and Medical Nutrition, and Jauke Feldman, who heads up the Biotis Sleepwell team at Friesland Campina Ingredients. So I wonder if you could first tell me, obviously you don't need to introduce Friesland Campina at all because it's extremely well known around the world, but I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the health benefit solutions and the Biotis brand. Sure. Thanks. Biotis is a, is a new brand, indeed, that we launched in June this year. It's focused on delivering new health benefits, ultimately, to consumers. We did a lot of research before launching this brand, of course, to understand the market and the dynamics and what consumers are looking for to be able to enable our customers then to deliver upon that. So we, we launched Biotis. Uh, we call it a new era in ingredient science. And we've launched so far two health benefit areas under that uh, brand. So we launched Gut Health in June, and this was the first in the range, which is focused really on an, a number of uh, health benefits within gut health and digestion. We launched GOS under that, Biotis GOS, Galactooligosaccharides, and this is an ingredient we're really excited about. Um, and we believe has a lot of opportunities and benefits for adults. And as a company, we have a lot of experience in the infant nutrition space uh, with this ingredient. But then most recently, we've launched Biotis Brain Health. This was at the beginning of October. Um, And this is a new area where we're really looking at developing a spectrum of solutions for different aspects of mental and cognitive health and well-being. So solutions to nourish the mind and the brain. And we really believe that the different aspects of brain health, including mental well-being and such as sleep and mood and stress, are all really linked to each other. So the first solution we've launched under this umbrella then is focused on sleep. And then we also will further develop areas for overall health, well-being and recovery under this umbrella. And how does the Sleep Well product work and what does it contain? And could you give me some background on how it was created? Yes, uh, thanks, Jim. And uh, it is in the end uh, developed for people who are not sleeping well. And, and unfortunately, quite a lot of people are not sleeping well. It's, uh, yeah, I think, a conservative number is 30%, which we uh, often use. But I think, in fact, it's actually quite higher. Many different reasons, of course, causing all those sleep issues, from which we think that stress is a very important one. But it also links to all kinds of other health issues. And I think people are not always aware that sleep and depression, uh, obesity, diabetes... A whole spectrum, actually, of health issues are, are linked to, uh, to sleep. Yeah, that was for us quite a, yeah, quite a good reason to, to look into it. And market research really shows right now that consumers try to solve it uh, in different ways. 
and try to improve their sleep quality in a, in a natural way. But it is not always easy to find natural solutions, which are also non-addictive. And, and that's where we think that Biota Sleepwell comes in. It provides the body with the right nutrients to help improve sleep quality in a natural way. And it's non-habit forming. So um, our development team in Wageningen, they created and piloted a unique solution focusing on sleep in a more holistic way. So it's not only falling asleep, what uh, what most of the products right now available are, are trying to do, but also trying to keep you sleep through the night and waking up more fresh. And we do that via the so-called gut-brain axis, which is uh, uh, yeah the link between your, your brain and, and your gut, which are interacting with each other. So a core of a specific protein fraction and the biotis galacto-oligosaccharides, as Vicky already mentioned, they do the trick. Yeah, it's one of the first products, I think, tapping into the sleep stress uh, uh, angle of, uh, via the digestive angle. A very emerging field, but yeah, we think it's very, very interesting and, and promising. So I hope uh, way more to come. And how will it be delivered to the consumer in what format? Yeah, there are all kinds of possibilities, but it can be used in different formats. More likely that consumers, at least that's what research showed us, uh, will use a, a small shot, just a very light, not heavy on their stomach for one hour before going to bed. So when taking Biota Sleepwell, then most people will start to, to feel an improvement quite soon. But the best um, improvement is felt are reported right now after 14 days of, of use. So it's really designed for daily use. Take it uh, one hour before going to bed. And uh, yeah, you can do it in a treatment package of 14 days, for example. When it comes to the product itself, it's versatile, as in it's flexible in application. We did in our clinical research, uh, we, we used it in powder and in a drink format, as in a small shot, but also RTDs, spoonable. The possibilities and opportunities are many. One thing which is really important to bear in mind is that Sleepwell is not a magic bullet. Eh? So with freezing peanut ingredients, we really look at health from a more holistic point of view. And we believe that eating healthy and sufficient exercise and sleeping well, of course, that's the ultimate recipe for living a long and healthy life. We really believe that uh, that sleep well can help you over there, uh, but it's not a miracle, of course. Is this something that just assists sleep or does it cause drowsiness? I mean, obviously, if it causes drowsiness, you couldn't put it in a yogurt that people could eat all day long. No, that's better than not. So it's actually working via a kind of mechanism. So it targets several mechanisms. And, and the first one is really stimulating your natural production of melatonin. So that means that it does not really cause drowsiness, but it only helps you to make sure that the melatonin will be produced by your own body itself. And all the other mechanisms really take place during night. And if you look at the main mechanism, so sleeping in, sleeping through and waking up fresh, then we see that the galacto-oligosaccharides are really doing their job on a more stress mechanism. And that is uh, something you could, for example, take the whole day. So if you would take it in the morning, you will not feel drowsy or whatsoever. It's only, uh, yeah, only working in, in the evening. As far as getting the product to consumers, is this something that you will be launching yourself or is it for your customers to use in their own products? Freezing campaign ingredients is supplying quality ingredients for brand owners. So we focus on delivering the solution and the ingredients along with, of course, experience and expertise and proposals on how to apply that. So just as Jelko was mentioning that the applications are versatile, it can be in a powder format and a ready to drink or a shot that we work with the brand owners to launch the concept in this way. So Biota Sleepwell has been specially designed for brand owners who would like to launch their own concept, which targets sleep and stress. 
this category is also growing really, really fast. Um, you see this in all the market research that comes back, but also in the magazines and the, and the online content and media. So you see that there is a huge interest already from many companies on Biota Sleep Well. And also on looking at the area of supplements, but also beverages, for example, and how they can really focus on delivering more health benefits through that. So we see that the brand owners that we've already been working with for many years, but also in the segments of performance nutrition and active nutrition, um, see this as a, as a nice opportunity. So we're very excited and very happy to be able to bring this solution to the market to enable our customers to deliver on these benefits to consumers with really excellent quality nutritional products. How would they label it? Would it in terms of, and, and are you able to work with them to to get the message across in terms of communication with the consumers? Yeah, we've developed some proposals about how they can think about communicating with consumers. This is something that we offer as in terms of a partnership and a bit of support as well. But ultimately, it is up to the, the brand owner themselves to decide which direction they will take and ensure that they're complying with local guidelines and regulations on claims and health claims in particular. But we always are there and happy to, to support. You mentioned the studies that you've done earlier. Could you tell me a bit more about the studies that have been done on the product to show that it's efficient? Yeah, and the proof of the pudding is in the end in the in the eating. So yeah, the big question, does the product really work? The clinical with Biota Sleepwell has shown some measurable improvements in sleep quality in both in consumer trials, which we executed and conducted, but also in clinicals. And uh, when we started a couple of years ago, the first things we did uh, when we had a product or an idea, when we already saw that it was a big consumer pain, we created our minimum viable product, as it's called, so the MVP. And we brought it to consumers very soon to test and uh, experience. So based on all those consumer feedback, we iterated and we, we checked a bit, a bit how we can make it even more, uh, more impactful so that we were learning quite fast how to improve it. Now, we further developed and engineered the product. And in total, now we conducted uh, four official uh, preclinical consumer tests with and uh, without placebo, by the way. In all those uh, clinical uh, preclinical tests, we saw that uh, Sleepwell performed better than, uh, than the placebo. And that gave us enough direction to uh, to design and execute a full-blown uh, randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled uh, clinical trial, which we executed in, in the Netherlands. In a crossover design, we tested the efficacy um, um, by measuring subjective parameters, so for example questionnaires, but also more objective ones, so like uh, saliva cortisol, phacal samples, and, uh, and measuring the sleep phases with a technical device. The trial has been executed at the beginning of this year, so luckily just before COVID arrived in Europe, and it's, yeah, we clearly shows an improvement of sleep quality after 14 days to be statistically significant versus the placebo. And we have some very nice results on the saliva cortisol, which is lower wake up, improvements on REM sleep and some in the intestinal bifido bacteria. So I think all cool and we're very happy with the results. But in the end, the consumer's opinion is really what counts for us is in perception is reality. Consumers should really feel the difference. And that's why we also will continue to, uh, for example, test these uh, things with consumers. Next to just the Biota Sleepwell Clinical we did this year and last year, we also executed another clinical trial uh, showing results on the reduction of social anxiety, so further substantiating the evidence. Both studies need to be published in the coming months, so I would say, uh, yeah, stay tuned. And is it something that you'll continue to work on in terms of tweaking it or doing more studies in the future? 
I think when you go into a direction like this, uh, you're more or less obliged to do so because it is a, it is a field which is still emerging. So we're still uh, finding in a lot of new things and, and discovering new things. So also over there, we will keep on developing the product further with, for example, some emphasis on more on stress or, or more on uh, other phases in, in sleep. So with our scientific team, we're looking into what the best directions are, but we will definitely follow up. At what point or how soon will we see this in actual products on the market? Yeah, that's, of course, an important question. So if, if we have, uh, I mean, we have a powder ready with the efficacy and the story, and then it's up to brand owners to develop something uh, and, and put it on the market. As said, it's a growing category and fast growing category, but it's also an emerging field as in the science is, is still picking up. That can take a couple of months, I would say, uh, even longer. But we're working now with uh, with a couple of uh, brand owners to develop, and I hope that should be feasible. I think at the end of next year or somewhere early next year, I hope that we would have something on the market. Along those same lines, are you developing it for global companies? And, and if so, are there different regulations in different places as to what can be put in and what can be said about different ingredients? Indeed, this is a global launch, absolutely. And always through our innovation process, we aim to innovate for the world. But we are very conscious and we work closely with our regulatory colleagues as well to understand the different regulations around the world. And that is one of the things that, as mentioned earlier, we work closely then with the brand owners who are launching so that they understand along with us the the opportunities and the limitations in line with the local guidelines. And then we make sure that indeed, in some cases, the solution or the total ingredients may need to be adapted slightly, depending on which countries allow certain ingredients or regulations. But that's something that we take into consideration early in the process as well. And then we continue to work on that throughout the launches. And are you constantly working on other products in the range? You kind of mentioned some of the products in the range right at the beginning. We are. We have a lot of focus on this brand. So on Biotis, we really believe that there's a a big opportunity here to help consumers to meet the needs that they have and the pains that they feel. And also then, of course, um, that we have an opportunity um, to be the, the ones that are there to help with that. As such, we're investing a lot in the brand in terms of new product development, but also leveraging the existing portfolio we have within Efries and Campina ingredients uh, and making some of those ingredients available to the adult nutrition uh, market. So we continue to innovate in this space and we'll bring many more new products to the market over the next couple of years. We're working on a number of solutions. We've mentioned two of the big benefit areas, but we also have a newer one coming later and you can find out more about that on um, biotis.com. So uh, there you will see the third, but uh, also very intriguing and interesting health benefit area of immunity that we will launch soon. With that coming, but also with our constant innovation around gut and brain, uh, we will bring a lot of new solutions to the market uh, in the near future. Other areas just to highlight that are emerging or that are very interesting is in general, the whole area of the microbiome and its impact on health. This is an area that we are focused upon and we really believe that we have the ability to bring some excellent solutions to this space as well. And you see that a lot of scientific research and new products are focused on this area around the world. Uh, And the other one is the gut-brain axis. This is an emerging but really interesting field of research, looking at the connection between the gut 
and brain health and the the link there and the mechanisms. And we we touch on it a little bit with Sleepwell now and that launch and the connection between um, the microbiome and how that can affect uh, sleep and stress. But we will also be looking much further into this area as well uh, so that we can bring uh, solutions to customers. Yeah, I think I think one thing what I, what I really love about actually what we're doing with Biotis is that you really try to improve consumers' lives. And yes, we do that in, together with B2B brand owners. But if you can focus and tackle on issues and problems which consumers experience in day-to-day life, like, for example, digestive health issues, like sleeping issues, I mean, that is so impactful. And that's really when it comes to nourishing by nature, that's what Friesen Campina is in the end really stands for. And I think Biotis is a very nice example of how we also try to live up our promises on that one. It's at the heart of what we do. Huh? So yeah. um, so making sure that we can um, improve the health of people around the world. I'm always interested in new technology and interesting science. So one company that caught my eye recently was Mitero, which, among other things, creates plastic and fibre from waste milk. To tell us more about the company and the amazing things it's doing is its founder and CEO, Robert Lowe. I wonder if you could first tell me a little bit about the company. Absolutely. So, uh, Mitero, we are a biotechnology company that creates ocean degradable and home compostable packaging materials made from recycled food waste. We actually made a pivot from for our company strategy in June. Before then, we were selling our own milk shirt. We're selling milk fiber. We still are. But now we're focusing more on replacing plastic from upcycled food waste. Okay. And how does that work? Did you have to develop new technologies to be able to do this? Right. This is a new technology. The proprietary technology focused on, right now, focused on milk waste. And we actually turn spoiled milk, expired milk, or even bad milk from sick cows into this flexible packaging film to replace the traditional LDPE or this type of petroleum-based plastic. You mentioned it was like spoiled milk and milk that can't be used. Where do you get that from? So we mainly get it from milk plants where they process a lot of milk. And I'm not sure whether this happened in the UK, but in the US, most of the expired milk that happens at grocery stores, supermarkets, they're actually delivered back to the milk plants, to the milk processing centers. And then those will be disposed into digester or feed livestock. So it's a lot more economically viable for them to sell it to you than it is to dispose of it? Right. So they can sell it to us or we will implement a profit sharing strategy, a model. So that means whatever we make, they get a portion of it as well. That must be quite attractive to the companies there. Right. So it does offer them several advantages. First is that they can reduce the cost of disposing of these waste. Second, they're creating a new stream of income from the waste they generate, even though we're not advocating them to generate more waste. And third is on the uh, marketing perspective. They can tell the consumers, hey, we're partnering with Mitero, a company that's not only recycling food waste, but also making into plastic packaging film that they can use in their own product without relying on plastic packaging. You do the plastic packaging from the milk and also the t-shirts from the milk. How much milk do you need in order to make those products? Right. So for the fiber, um, looks like cotton. And for every kg of fiber, we probably need, I would say, 30 to 40 
kg of milk to create one kg of fiber because a lot of times milk has uh, have water rather than the, the protein that's inside. So that's the amount of what we need. And for the packaging material, let's say for a, a roll of packaging film, that's about 2,000 feet times 30 centimeter in width, it will require about 1,000 kg of liquid milk. What are the economics of that? The, the t-shirts and the packaging that you're creating, are they more expensive than regular products or how does the economics work? I'll say for the fiber, the milk fiber, it costs cheaper compared to organic cotton. And that's where we, we're competing with. And we're offering a different type of softness that organic cotton does not possess. This particular product is gearing toward more premium markets such as baby apparel, luxurious, or even sleepwear. And for the packaging material, right now, it's impossible to be lower than the traditional plastic because it's so cheap. For the price, we're competing with other type of bio-based materials such as PLA, PBAT, etc. And from our estimation that our costs compared to PLA, we will cost 40% higher compared to the traditional plastic, whereas PLA will cost about 100% more expensive. But this is something that is biodegradable in nature? Right. It's not just biodegradable, it's home compostable. It means if you bury it in your backyard, it should compost within a couple of weeks. It's also marine degradable. It means if you somehow leave it into the ocean, it will slowly degrade. You have these um, processes called PROACT and uh, this DFS. Are you able to, without giving any secrets away, obviously, are you able to tell me how, how those processes work from when you get the milk to when the product comes out the other end? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of PROACT, means protein activation. That's where we purify, we extract and purify these bacteria-grown milk from spoil, expire, or um, bad milk from sick cows. And then DFS means dynamic flow shear spinning, in which we implement the um, wet spinning process to spin the protein into fiber. And so the quality of the milk doesn't matter whether it's just excess milk or spoiled milk? Right. So obviously, the fresher the milk, the better it is, because the more protein that we can extract from the milk itself. But I would say that the type of milk that we can use will be either fresh milk or milk that has gone expired and grow bacteria for one month. And usually no company in the world will want to keep the milk for one month. So essentially we can use any type of milk in the process. Are there any other kinds of foods that would potentially be utilizable for this kind of process? Absolutely. So essentially, uh, we can also work with plant-based product as well, as long as it has protein inside. What we're essentially doing is engineer the protein so that can be made into fiber or uh, packaging film. So for example, we can use soy because soy has a very similar mechanical structure as dairy protein, milk protein. We can also use distiller grains, which is the byproduct of brewing beer. And would those all go into the same process? So you would have to have different plants for different products? So the process is very similar. We have to make a little adjustments according to the specific type of protein. But overall, the process is very similar. We don't have to build a new plant. It's just that we have to make a little adjustment to the machines. And what about the scale of production? Are you able to produce at large scale? Right now, uh, we're still in the R&D phase, especially for the packaging film. 
but our goal is definitely to reach commercial scale by 2025. And we intend to launch a pilot next year. That's where we will demonstrate to other companies that partner with us as a doable business model. And is it something that you would do all out of one plant or would you have a variety of facilities to capitalize on? Because obviously you wouldn't be able to ship milk from New York to LA. You would want to do things locally. Our strategy is to co-locate the protein extraction machine on site. That means we turn the liquid form of milk into powder on site. Then that can be better shipped at a lower cost to a centralized production site. Okay. And how big is the equipment that we're talking about here? Right now, it's about 100 100 square meter. What kind of volumes are you able to deal with? Because obviously, this is something that is quite important environmentally to be able to do this kind of thing. So we um, we expect by 2022, that's where we start producing at a small scale. We can approximately create about 900 rolls of films. That, that's how much we intend to create and replace. And then by 2023, we intend to create about 25,000 rolls of packaging film. And by 2025, where we reach commercialization, we intend to create about one, 1 million rolls of films on an annual basis. And so that packaging could then be used for food or like cheese products or whatever? There are different varieties of application from the film. First will be the traditional food and fruit packaging that includes dairy and plant-based. And the second type will be used as organic waste bag or shopping bag. Because once we seal the sides of the film, it can create into bags. That will be a great way for us to compost the organic food waste that we have at home. And at the same time, we are also looking to use it as a coating on those paper cups that we have. Because a lot of times, if you notice, inside a paper cup, there's a thin layers of plastic so water cannot go through. And we want to replace that plastic coating. Are you getting interest from other companies to partner with you on this? Absolutely. So we intend to launch a pilot with DFA, Dairy Farmers America, next year. Um, hopefully that we can directly turn the old milk waste into the packaging material, which they need for all of the dairy products. At the same time, we also see other type of fruit companies that have shown interest in our work. And I suppose it also helps a lot of these companies meet some of their sustainability goals as well. Right. I think that for me, I really want to help out farmers because I learned about all this milk waste from my uncle, who is a farmer. And farmers are pretty much an underappreciated group of people. They feed the entire world, but we rarely appreciate their effort or their work. In fact, a lot of people are, are trying to replace them with lab-grown vegetable, lab-grown meat, etc., which I think lab-grown will take a long time to even scale up. So I want to directly support farmers by helping them making more money. Another article we had this week was about the opening of the U.S. Dairy Export Council's Center for Dairy Excellence, which has opened in Singapore. To tell us about it from the U.S. and not in Singapore currently is Vicky Nicholson-West, Executive Director of U.S. DEC Singapore Limited. I wonder if you could tell me what the reasoning was behind creating a center in Asia? Well, I think first and foremost, it was looking towards creating a, a center, but really it was about creating a center of excellence that allows the U.S. dairy industry to get closer to the customer. 
So, you know, we wanted to enhance our support of U.S. processors, while at the same time upping our engagement with the trade and key opinion leaders, whether that would be in culinary or the health professional realm, and with key partners, you know, those that we have very strong relationships with. So this level of customer centricity really was to foster collaboration, um, accelerated growth, and reinforce the shared values and commitment of the U.S. dairy industry to nourishing consumers worldwide. So we really were looking for the opportunity to do this. Southeast Asia really kind of edged out other geographic locations as the region to focus on for this first endeavor. So, you know, we took a, a careful and methodical evaluation process in place, and that put Southeast Asia at the top of a number of promising regions that we could have put our first center of dairy excellence in, our one and only right now, for establishing, you know, an enhanced physical presence. And why did you choose Singapore? Singapore for Southeast Asia really is, you could call it the gateway to Asia Pacific. It is a place of doing business, but I think some of the things that rose to the top as being an ideal location within the region was, you know, it has this commitment to investing in food and beverage innovation, and it has a very dynamic food and beverage sector, along with the region itself having a growing middle class that's buoyed by a higher purchasing power, you know, a rising focus on consumer health consciousness, especially in the nutrition and health and wellness and well-being area. And the customers in the region are also increasingly recognizing, you know, the advantages of partnering with large network of U.S. dairy suppliers and recognizing our supply for sustainably produced advantageous portfolio of nutritional and functional dairy ingredients and cheeses. It really was a good central location to be able to reach the region and be able to work from there as a hub to make an impact and grow the opportunity of working with customers and the trade in the region. Now you're the executive director of U.S. DEC Singapore. Does this mean you get to move there? <laughs> no, I'm not moving there, though. I think staff and our uh, partners there almost assumed that I might have or already had. I was there so often. But no, we have a great staff already placed in Singapore that is running the show extremely well with a great set of capabilities and expertise, knowledge of the industry. Uh, they've established great working relationships with the trade across the many markets they really are just a wonderful team out there, and they're doing exceptional work. So how long has it taken for this facility to become reality? Uh, it's been about three years in the making. You know, the, the vision of this began with our CEO and the industry's uh, most senior leaders really posing the challenge of how our industry can be the supplier of choice and accelerate export growth and how can we do that by getting closer to our customers and being able to build a greater rapport? It's been stepwise. We made investments in capabilities and people within the many office representatives of U.S. DEC that we already work with, and not just 
in Singapore, but in many regions and markets around the world to help support our industry. And we also have enhanced the number of relationships, strategic relationships and partnerships and expanded those to support exports and expand the presence of uh, U.S. dairy in multiple markets. But this really was the culmination of taking this to the next level of brick and mortar and having an expanded footprint that had a, an expanded physical presence beyond just having great exceptional people in market that have been working there for several years. But this was also looking at how can we bring the experience of the U.S. dairy story closer to our customers and to the trade within a region to not only grow exports and grow volume and value, but also to help grow their understanding and build that customer-centric experience and um, relationship with them. And what benefits will this bring to U.S. farmers and companies overall? Well, beyond just the industry looking to increase its competitive advantage in the region in the support of growth, whether that's volume or value, as I said before, we're also looking to provide customers with a great opportunity to experience our story, to experience our members, to get closer to our farmers and processors, get to know them better and get to understand our industry better. But also we see that for our farmers and for our, our, our U.S. dairy processors, it will provide them a forum to learn even more about the region itself, about the Southeast Asian food and beverage industry, about their consumers, about the needs and challenges that those customers are experiencing, and also to provide a venue to help those customers and that trade learn more about what our industry has to offer and the various types of products, the diversity of our membership, of our U.S. dairy processors, so that it not only enhances the business commercial side, but it builds that long-term value proposition and commitment to U.S. dairy. What capabilities does the center have and, and what kind of things will you be able to do from there? It's really a place to experience U.S. dairy and our story and hear directly from our farmers and processors. We've got a state-of-the-art demonstration kitchen, which it's, you know, like in any house, the kitchen is the heart of the home. For us, the kitchen is the heart of this home in Southeast Asia. So it, we are, have the capability to do culinary demonstrations, food application demonstrations, whether it be to a small group or a large group. It's connected to our flexible training rooms that are up to date in the latest AV technology, including video conferencing and live streaming. So you can live stream those demonstrations and presentations. We have a sensory evaluation lab that we based on ISO standards to support learning more about the palate preferences of local consumers and how our dairy ingredients and cheeses can be incorporated into Southeast Asian applications. And then, of course, we've got workspace for staff working in the facility, and that space is separated from the public space and allow them to be effective and to develop these activities and programs in support of our U.S. dairy processors. And we also built in a little hoteling space for uh, 
U.S. processors and farmers that are visiting in the region so that they have a little place to work away from home. We tried to think of what our guests, staff, and members would need to be effective, and we worked to try and include those wherever possible within the physical space to make it comfortable and, and productive, even down to universal outlets in the, the training and meeting rooms. This is where we're starting. It's a 500-square-meter space, or about 5,200 square feet, and it is located in an area just on the edge of the central business district called Robertson Key. Reasonably accessible from Changi Airport, about a 20-minute drive, taxi ride, but also easily accessible by metro and with a number of U.S. processors also having some offices in Singapore and a number of our, our partners being there. It's centrally located even within Singapore to, to relate to them, along with being centrally located within Southeast Asia itself. So you'll be able to welcome companies from around the region to the facility, and also if they can't make it, you'll be able to sort of broadcast to them and reach out to them digitally, I guess. I can't say that we forecasted that we would be in this current environment, but we were trying to be forward thinking and knowing that at the time that we were putting this together, that, you know, technology probably would end up being a larger part of the learning and experience process. We wanted to be able to have some of the digital technology included like video conferencing and, and live streaming. So we really wanted to, to be more of an in-person. So that's why we had it as a, as a training hub, and we can't wait to have a number of visitors, whether they be customers, partners, opinion leaders, et cetera, come visit the space and spend time with us there. But in the interim, because of the social distancing requirements locally there, uh, we do have the ability to, as you can say, broadcast. And we'll actually be holding our first uh, webinar out of the facility in mid-November, and it'll be a, a seminar focused on healthy aging and the role of dairy proteins in healthy aging applications. So we're very excited to at least be able to continue to share the story about U.S. dairy and U.S. dairy proteins and our other ingredients and cheeses going forward, even though we can't spend time in person, we'll spend time with them virtually. And what kind of partnerships are you looking to develop in the market? Can basically, could any company in that region communicate with you and you work with them on whatever project they're working on? This is an opportunity where we want to be able to educate a number of food and beverage manufacturers about U.S. dairy um, that are in the region. But also we're looking to work more with some of our existing partnerships that we have, whether it be like Food Innovation Resource Center from Singapore Polytechnic. We have a culinary relationship with Chef Peter Nip and his organization, World Gourmet Summit. Uh, we look to work with more culinary institutions, uh, especially uh, with our cheese program. But we have relationships with those in the nutrition and health and well-being space. But look to interact more with academia, culinary, and other food and beverage-related organizations. And we look at this as the opportunity as in supporting U.S. dairy processors in the market to have their customers be able to come or 
I'll say come to our webinars or come to the facility when, when the doors are, are finally open from a social distancing standpoint and learn more about U.S. dairy. So we think it's really important to build strong relationships in the region across various disciplines, whether that be regulatory, culinary, or even policy, for an example. So we look at this to be beyond just technical, but also as a learning hub, a a training hub to really expand on a number of disciplines that are relative to dairy that uh, stakeholders will be very interested in. And is this something that once it's up and running and running smoothly, you you would think of replicating this in other regions or is that a little too early to say? I'd say right now we'd like to kind of cut our teeth on this one and get some of the learnings under our belt. This is the first endeavor of of its kind for our industry and definitely for U.S. DAC. So right now, there's nothing in, in the plan that we have out there for replicating this. But, you know, ask me that s- the same question about three years from now and, and we'll see what I say. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it must be great having the first one there and ready to spring into action, so to speak. You know, I think overall, it's just we're, we're really excited about this. I know that our farmers are. I know that our processors are. Some might say the timing might not have been so good, but on the other hand, you know, you can't predict these things, but it's definitely there in order to facilitate a relationship. And we have this in real time locally, and we're really looking forward to how it enhances the customer relationships that our members have. For those members that are already in the region physically themselves, how we continue to support them and complement what they do. So we we really look at this as a win-win opportunity for not only the U.S. dairy industry, but also for the food and beverage industry of Southeast Asia. Because granted, the growth there has been um, very strong for the past couple of years overall on their imports. I think there's a lot of shared values between our U.S. dairy community and the Southeast Asian community that will allow us to really work to mutually benefit each other on nourishing consumers and building quality products for the industry. Now it's all about ice cream. Well, that and smoothies and yogurt and cocktails and all kinds of other things that can be produced from a new invention called Cold Snap, which is a really cool appliance that works kind of like a Keurig coffee machine, only for ice cream with recyclable containers. We had an article on it earlier this week, and it's such a great idea with so much potential that we got to talk to the president of the company that invented it, and that's Matt Fonte. Well, good morning, Jim. Uh, thank you for having me on. Glad to tell you a little bit about Cold Snap. Yeah, this is a company that myself and some friends, my brother and some friends, started two years ago. The intent was to make a, a Nespresso or Keurig-style home appliance for ice cream. And so what we set out to do is put liquid ice cream mix or it could be other confections. It could be a smoothie or a frozen yogurt or maybe a frozen cocktail like a margarita or a mudslide or daiquiri, protein shakes. But basically put uh, liquid contents in a can and insert the can into an appliance which fits on the countertop in your kitchen underneath the cabinets and plugs into the wall, but effectively freezes the liquid ingredients in 90 seconds 
and then dispenses it directly from the can into the bowl or dish beneath it. Doing this, we're able to freeze uh, fresh confections on demand, creating an extremely uh, creamy and velvety fresh texture, but also there's no mess. Because the food ingredients never touch the appliance, there's nothing to clean. After you dispense the ice cream or frozen smoothie or yogurt out of your can, you just pull the can out of the machine and uh, put it in the recyclable bin. It's a way of taking something that's already prepared, put it in a machine, quickly freezing it, and then being able to move on with your day without having to stop to clean any products. It's a personalized experience. So if you want an ice cream, for instance, a chocolate ice cream, and I might want a strawberry daiquiri, and somebody else may want a frozen coffee, everybody can get a single serving of their choice at any time. You said that it was when you, you guys got together and decided to, to make this. Obviously, sometimes you have these fantastic ideas and it doesn't quite go to plan when it when it comes to putting it together and getting everything started. How long did it take to, what, was it easy or how long did, have you been doing this to get it to where you are now? Yeah, it has not been easy. I consider it expensive. When we started, friends and family invested in us and we started hiring um Mostly engineers that we had worked with in the past. These are people that during the course of my career, the last 25 years, I thought very highly of and asked them to come join us on this exciting uh, opportunity. And since then, we've expanded our team. I think we're up to 12 or 14 engineers at this time. What we're doing has never been done before, and I can understand why. It's not easy. We're basically taking a refrigeration system that's used for air conditioners on, uh, say, airplanes, and we're miniaturizing it into a, a home appliance and using all that refrigeration capability to freeze something as quickly as we can. And one of the challenges is getting the heat out of the machine. As we freeze, we have to dissipate all the heat and it's, it's very challenging. But we've been iterating and we've been doing focus groups and we're, uh, we've come a long way in the last two years. Is it on the market yet? No, we plan on doing a beta launch second quarter next year, 2021. So we're still iterating, showing people we're also developing a Wi-Fi capability, so we'll be able to replace pods on demand through e-commerce. So say this is in an office and they consume a certain amount of pods per day or per week. If they elect to, we'll be able to see how many pods they're using and through Amazon or other means, ship them pods directly through e-commerce. It's the first time you can really ship ice cream through e-commerce without having to worry about keeping the ice cream frozen. So could you give me a bit of info on what the machine is and what it does, how it works, that kind of thing? Because you mentioned that three different people could have three different products out of it. How does it work? Yeah, the package is essentially an aluminum beverage can. It looks, you may be familiar with the Red Bull beverage can. And so inside that can, we'll have the liquid ingredients. So it could be a coffee that we're freezing into a frozen coffee. It could be a dairy, an ice cream. It could be an oat-based ice cream with a non-dairy. It could be whatever you want in there as in a liquid form. And what you do is the user will open the lid, similar to an espresso or a Keurig machine, and drop in the can, close the lid, and there's actually a mixing element inside the can. And as we rotate, we're churning and mixing the ice cream over the course of a minute and a half. And when the liquid turns to a solid, the machine senses how many amps are being used to drive this internal mixing element and will automatically open the can by itself when the certain torque threshold is reached. And at that point, this mixing element drives the ice cream out of the can directly into the bowl or dish beneath it. It's a compressor condenser system. And so we're using a refrigerant to dissipate all that heat. 
and effectively freeze the ingredients into a solid state. You mentioned different products, so people would have to buy like chocolate ice cream cans and different cans. Or how how does that part of it work? You, they would get in touch with you and say, "This is what we want in it," or you would have preloaded stuff. Yeah, we would have preloaded stuff. Like on our website, for instance, we'll have maybe I don't know. Let's just just say a dozen ice cream flavors you could choose from. And you could have a variety pack or all vanilla ice cream or whatever you want, or it could be a mixture of smoothies or cocktails or coffees or protein shakes or ice cream flavors, and you choose what you want, and it's a personalized experience. And so, obviously, in that respect, the, the sky's the limit, really. I mean, you could have tens of thousands of different options. How would you manage that? Well, we're going to start small. We have challenges ahead of us, so we're going to walk before we run. Right now, we're, we have a, a vanilla and a chocolate developed. We have a bourbon-flavored ice cream. We have non-dairy ice creams like oat-based ice cream, vanilla, chocolate, and various other flavors. And we have a whole line of smoothies as well. So we're starting off with um, some healthy things like smoothies and then certainly ice cream. And then from there, we'll keep developing coffees and cocktails and, and other things. We'll start small and just uh, kind of see what people think and what we can develop from here. What are the advantages over just buying a tub of ice cream and sticking it in your freezer? Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but at our house, our freezer is always packed. So typically when we have ice cream, it's one flavor, maybe two at the most. Here, the pods are shelf stable, so you can keep them in your pantry or cupboard or in the cabinets. And you can have as many as you want. You could have dozens of pods in your basement, for instance, or wherever you want, and they're room temperature. So you could have various flavors, and you could freeze whatever you want, whenever you want, on demand. So one of the advantages is no refrigeration. Another advantage is you don't have to clean the machine. Another advantage is the pods are prepared for you. I know my daughters like to have smoothies, and it's always a process to mix all the ingredients, source the ingredients, and then mix the mixing and putting in the ice. And then eventually you have to clean a blender that has sharp blades. All of that hassle goes away with our processes. The uh, ingredients are in the can, you freeze it, and then you recycle the can. No cleaning. It's sustainable. The other thing is we've come to learn that a lot of the cost of making ice cream that you would consume at your home is keeping the ice cream frozen at the factory and then shipping it in the trucks to keeping it frozen on its way to the grocery stores. Then the grocery stores keep it frozen in their freezers 24-7, and you eventually buy it and then rush it home, put it in your freezer, and keep freezing it. So you're adding a lot of cost in terms of energy and also carbon emissions into that tub of ice cream by the time it's consumed. Our situation, we think we can easily eliminate 50% of the carbon footprint associated with making, manufacturing, transporting, and consuming ice cream because the only freezing you're doing is when you want it, the 60 or 90 seconds that you actually want to consume the ice cream. So we think it's a very um, compelling story from a green perspective, or it's an environmentally friendly story. And, and what about the taste and texture? Are they similar, better? It's better because this internal mixing element that we use is removing the ice as it's built up on the inner diameter of the can and churning it and mixing it into the balance of the fluid during the freezing process. And then when we dispense, it's the same texture ice cream that they make in the manufacturing plant before it goes into the deep freeze that's required to ship the ice cream and transport it to the grocery stores. So we're basically making ice cream as it is right off the line in the factory before they have to 
add stabilizers to keep the ice crystals from growing during transit and doing the hard pack required to ship it to the grocery store. So it's fresh, it's light, it's very dense. Right now we're using 14% buttermilk fat. So it's high quality premium ice cream, but it's got a very smooth texture. In fact, we've quantified at the University of Wisconsin's ice cream laboratory that we have 40% smaller ice crystals than say Haagen-Dazs. You were mentioning the carbon footprint earlier. So obviously sustainability was important when you were developing the pods. Yeah, I mean, it would have been easier and less expensive for us to use a plastic package, but we're actually trying to do the right thing and make it fully recyclable. So that's been an important element of our design criteria right from the beginning. And as far as applications for this, you obviously I can kind of see one sitting in the kitchen next to the microwave or whatever, but probably has commercial opportunities in offices if we ever go back to working in the office again <laughs> and sort of airports and you know at events. Yeah, that's right, Jim. We're we're initially thinking um, to do a launch in car dealerships, cafeterias, and universities and hospitals, convenience stores. It could be associated with a gas station or a standalone convenience store. And from there, we'll see how it goes. But certainly offices, stadiums, or any place where there's a lot of gatherings and where you don't have a freezer to keep a frozen ice cream today. You know, we're basically eliminating the cold supply chain here associated with ice cream. And that could be as, you know, a big picture like countries, like maybe there are places in the, in the world where the cold supply chain isn't strong or doesn't exist where this could be a good fit, but it also could mean in an office. You know, you don't necessarily have a freezer in every office, but in a break room, you could certainly plug in this machine into the wall and get your ice cream on demand without requiring a large uh, refrigerator or freezer. And as far as being cost-effective for consumers? Yeah, we plan on launching, this may change, but $2.99 a pod. Okay, and what's what would the typical volume be coming out of a pod? Six to seven ounces of ice cream. And in terms of the user interface, is it easy to use, screen-based, that kind of thing? The way it works is when you approach the machine, uh, you'll tap the screen and it'll turn on. It'll be in sleep mode, presumably, if nobody has been using it previous to yourself. You open the lid by sliding it back. It's very intuitive. You drop the can in, very similar to putting a Keurig pod or an espresso pod in the machine. Close the lid and hit the start button. And that's it. You don't do anything else, but you'll see on the screen what's going on. And after a minute and a half and the ice cream's in the bowl, it'll ask you to remove the pod and recycle it. And as far as stupid people like me, can it go in upside down or is it is it foolproof that way as well? It's foolproof. Yeah, it cannot go upside down. It can't fit pods that aren't made to fit in there and it won't work with the wrong pod. I was just thinking of me trying to put it in and wondering why it won't go in because I've got it upside down or something crazy like that. I've tried those mistakes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, because I suppose that when you do invent something like this, you've got to think of the potential. It's all, all right thinking of how it works, but you've also got to think of the potential issues for people that might not use it correctly or might, you know, got to look for the, uh, the negatives as well and, and fix those before they happen. Yes, that's right. We're trying to think of everything. It's challenging, but it's fun. We're really enjoying it. What makes it fun for our team is that this has never been done before. Everywhere we turn, there's a new challenge, but a new opportunity. Are you working on other things, like other ways this can be used or constantly improving it or other products, or is it just focusing right now on getting this to market? 
Well, it's the latter. Right now, we're focusing on getting this to market, but we have brainstormed a myriad of different applications for this. For instance, we can make a machine that we could put a Keurig or an espresso machine inside our shell. And so one machine can make a hot coffee or a cold ice cream or frozen ice cream or vice versa. We can also make a machine where you could have multiple ice creams being made at the same time. So if you wanted to go to a fast food restaurant and there is a, a large demand, you can make four or five at a time if you wanted to. Or we can envision putting this in the door of a freezer, refrigerator freezer, and using the, the infrastructure already in the freezer to do the freezing of the uh, ice cream. We have come up with ideas to make slushies and a whole bunch of uh, different products. But right now we're focused on getting this one product to market and then we'll expand from there. Nice to be in on the beginning of something as opposed to taking an existing technology and redefining it. You're, you're sort of starting from scratch. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Nobody's ever seen this before. And so when we show it to people, it almost seems magical that you're putting this room temperature can in the machine and ice cream's coming out and it tastes so good. It's like, wow, that's that's magic. And how can people learn more? If people wanted to go to our website, coldsnap.com, they can find out more information and then contact us. We're still at an early stage. We're looking for partners out there, perhaps, to help us commercialize or funding partnerships. So we're open to talking to folks that might be interested. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Jim. EU dairy markets took a move lower this week um, on average, um, especially the, the forward curves in the futures markets. Main reason for that is there's bit well, quite significant negative sentiment around uh, the continued kind of lockdowns that we're seeing across Europe and the impact that's potentially going to have on, on dairy demand over the coming weeks and months. That's obviously weighing on the mood and the sentiment in the markets. But at the same time, there's been other quite bearish news out, which is all supporting this drive lower. Um, started with some pretty large milk production numbers in the US uh, last week, up um, you know 3.3% um, on a component basis, which, you know, very strong uh, and certainly much stronger than expected. But we've also seen some pretty negative numbers in terms of exports coming out of the EU. Um, we see for August numbers released here uh, down 8%. Uh, on a milk equivalent basis um, compared to the same time last year, which is, which is a lot worse than we had expected. And, you know, if you look across some of the individual products, you're seeing skim down over 16% year on year, butter down, you know, 5.4% and cheese down over 5% as well. The main overall market for EU products was going to China. And, and I think China's the one real point of optimism for for people out there at the moment because they've also released their import numbers um over the last uh, couple of days and, and they continue to be really strong you know just very large numbers year on year especially for the whey products um but also skim milk powder as well up very strong up almost 30 percent year on year so so really showing some strong growth there um, and, and it's needed because most other signals out there are quite negative um, at the moment. So, you know, production numbers continue to be quite good um, everywhere in New Zealand, uh, even Europe now. We've recovered from some negative numbers in, in August to, to see improvements again in milk collections in September. 
Uh, and the US, again, as I mentioned earlier, is, is very strong. So, you know, sentiment is not great at the moment. But as we're moving down in the markets here, we do continue to see um, end users in the market, which shows that the coverage is not that large or not as, as far forward as it might normally be. So that's providing a bit of support as we move down here. So overall negative for the week, um, but there is some signs of, of support coming in. Thanks, Charlie. We'll catch up with you again next week, which is actually next month. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that just about does it for another week. A couple of interviews already done for next time with some more really interesting cutting-edge stuff for you. And of course, it's our last podcast before the webinar, so only one more chance to shamelessly plug that before it happens. And I do hope you can join us. It really does promise to be a great discussion. If by any chance you're in a place where trick-or-treating is actually going ahead at the end of this week, I hope you have fun and the weather stays fine. And I hope you all have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.